Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to the best damn movie related show on the planet Earth, The John Campus Show, coming from right here on my YouTube channel. I am, of course, your host, John Campia, and it is an awesome honor and privilege, as it is every day, to have you, our international friends, gather around as we talk about our favorite things in the world, movies, movie news, TV, and streaming, and all sorts of good stuff. And uh, I'm flying solo today. Actually, guys, I'm probably going to be flying solo for the rest of the week. Uh, so I got I haven't actually done that in a while. I haven't done like a full week of shows doing solo. So we're going to probably do that this week, get back to more normal next week. But it is good to have you guys here today as we are here to talk about all of our favorite things in the world, movies, TV, and streaming, and again, all sorts of good things. It's good to have you guys here. And listen, in case I don't say enough, awfully grateful uh, that you guys choose to spend a part of your day here with us, your fellow movie fans, as we talk about all these cool things. And we do have a lot of things that we need to talk about here today. And here's how today's show is going to go. We're going to break it up into two parts. The first part of the show, we're going to talk about some predetermined topics. Then in the second half of the show, we're going to take your live comments and questions. If you'd like to get a live comment or question right on the show or in an upcoming companion video, simply click on the tip link that's down in the description of this video. You can go down and see it there, or you can enter it in manually at www.streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. You'll be getting your comment or question right on the show, if we deem it appropriate for the show, of course. And, of course, you'll be supporting the channel at the same time. And all of us here involved with the John Campus Show, thank you guys so very much for your support. Uh, one other bit of housekeeping, guys. Don't forget, if you need your daily fix of the John Campus Show, but you can't be in front of a YouTube video, good news, there is an audio-only version of the show that we call the John Campus Show Podcast. It is available on every podcasting service, so whatever your podcasting service of choice is, just go there, search for the John Campus Show Podcast, hit subscribe, and that way the podcast will be there when you need it. And thank you to everybody who's already subscribed to the podcast. Okay, guys. Before we get into our main topics here today, there is one off the top to discuss, and that is this. You know, I was tremendously impressed with Aquaman. I mean, it wasn't my favorite DC movie. Man of Steel is still my favorite DC movie, but I was tremendously impressed with it. I mean, a lot of people didn't know which way it was going to go. It could be a car wreck. Was, you know, was it going to flesh out well? Or were the fans going to respond to it? And Aquaman came out. The critics responded to it generally pretty positively. The audiences responded to it and it became the first DCEU film to make a billion dollars at the box office. Something I really didn't think it could do. Like I knew Aquaman would be a hit. I kept telling people it would be a hit, but when people would say to me, do you think it could make a billion dollars? I'm like, whoa, let's let, don't get carried away here. Aquaman is not going to make a billion dollars. That's laughable. Dear heavens, that's not going to make a billion dollars. It'll be a hit. It won't be a billion dollars. Well, guess what? Made a billion dollars. Um, and now, shortly, not too terribly long after that, there came word that James Wan and Warner Brothers wanted to develop a spinoff film for uh, for Aquaman that was going to be about the trench. You, of course, remember all the monsters were in Aquaman. It was going to be called the trench. And apparently it was going to be kind of this whole focus on the, the legend of the trench and how those creatures got there and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of people wondered... Really? That seems like an odd choice. Like, do people really want to go and see these creatures that, frankly, played a fairly minor role in the Aquaman movie? Do people really want to go see a full movie about that? Interesting. Okay, let's see where this goes. Now, eventually that trench movie got canceled. We all knew that. But now it looks like it was never actually going to be a trench movie. As James Wan was responding to some people on social media, 
and revealed that the Trench movie was actually secretly going to be a Black Manta spinoff film. That that was the idea. Now, if we scroll down here, this is coming to us from the good folks over at Coming Soon. Basically, if you go down here to this section, we'll jump over to the Twitter page itself where he's talking about it. He says, James Wan replies, he says, well, first of all, he's asked a question. He says, will you be doing a Black Manta streaming series maybe? And then James Wan responded, I'll let you in on a secret. The canceled Trench spinoff movie was really going to be a secret Black Manta movie. And that was ultimately going to actually be what that thing was going to be about. It was going to be a Black Manta movie. Now, there's a part of me that thinks, okay, that makes perfect sense. Because, again, a lot of us, when they announced The Trench, while we had some interest in it, it still felt like an odd choice as a spinoff film. A Black Manta spinoff standalone film, that makes a lot more sense to me. Like, clearly, you could see why they were doing that. From the moment they cast Yaya Abdul-Mateen to play this role... DC and the producers were constantly saying he's going to play a big role in the DC universe moving forward. So the fact that they would want to do a spinoff film of him to me makes a lot more sense than the idea of doing a trench film. At the same time, I understand why it got canceled even as a Black Manta spinoff film. Because really, what have we seen from Black Manta so far? Not a lot. He was a very good antagonist in Aquaman, but we really didn't get a lot of him. And I don't know that the audience was yet attached to this character enough that they would have gone out and supported a standalone movie yet. Now, that's not me saying that I don't think we can get a standalone Black Manta movie. I think we could. And I'll tell you what else. I'd be totally shocked if within the next three years we don't hear announcements of a Black Manta standalone movie. I think we will get one. I think DC is really all in on this character, and I think they're going to want to give him his own solo film. So I think it's going to come. But I don't think the time was now. I think DC needs to get him on screen once, maybe twice more, show a little bit more of what depth you can give this character. (laughs) Depth, (laughs) no pun intended. What depth you can give this character and make him a fan favorite. And then you move forward with doing some kind of solo project. So again, not surprised that The Trench wasn't the actual movie. Also not surprised that they canceled it. The question is for you guys. What do you think about this news, that The Trench was actually a secret Black Manta movie all along? Do you think they should have moved forward with it? Do you agree with me that maybe it's good that they wait till they do a solo film? Whatever you guys are thinking, jump on down into the comment section below and leave us your thoughts. Okay, guys. Uh, now, before we get into our main talks, just want to shout out Alan Miguel the Third sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, Alan. As does our friend Matt Guillaume sends in a, a super chat badge. Thank you very much. As well as Rhett Proctor sends in like a $20 super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you guys so much for sending that in there. We appreciate your support. Okay. With that down, let's now move on to our main topics here today, shall we? And how do we select our main topics on the John Campia Show? Well, it's really easy. You see, you guys come up with our main topics. Whenever you come across a big topic, issue, or story that you guys feel we need to cover here as a main topic on The John Campia Show, just go anytime 24-7 over to www.thejohncampiashow.com slash contact. Once you guys get there, you're going to see a form. Fill it out with your topic or question. It's absolutely free. Hit submit, and then maybe, just maybe, you might see your submission featured as a main topic here on the John Campia Show. And by the way, Taylor Haywood sends in a super chat badge as well. Thank you, Taylor. All right. 
that down, let's get into main topic number one. And our first main topic today gets submitted to us by Lee Sunday. And Lee Sunday writes, Hi, John. I've heard you mention that you watched the Nathan Fillion show, The Rookie. I love The Rookie. I actually really, really like that show. Anyway, I do too. I love it. Wondering if you saw that the show just announced that they won't be using live guns on the show anymore and will only use prop and add it and only use prop guns and add CGI muzzle flashes in the future because of the Alec Baldwin situation. What do you think? All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yeah, of course, a big topic of conversation around the world of entertainment lately has been obviously surrounding the situation on the movie set of rust, uh, the, the cinematographer who lost her life, the director who got shot, all that kind of stuff. Just to sum up what we know right now, a lot of safety procedures got violated. Uh, a, there was a gun on set that for still unknown reasons, there are some rumors going around right now that maybe some of the crew were using the guns, for target practice earlier, but that's been unsubstantiated so far. Maybe it's true, but so far it's been unsubstantiated, but how a live round of a gun, a live round got into a gun on a movie set is still completely beyond me. Uh, the assistant director brought the gun onto set, proclaimed, yelled out on set, cold gun, cold gun, just signifying that there is a weapon on set, but it's totally inert. There's nothing, this is totally safe. It's a, just at this point, it's just a useless prop handed it to Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin was rehearsing a scene where he's supposed to bring up this camera here, where he's supposed to point the gun at the camera. Like a lot of movies have that shot where the hero or the villain points the gun right at the camera. So it looks like he's pointing at the audience. And unfortunately, obviously the cinematographer was at the camera um, and the live round went off, went through her, hit the director as well. And the tragedy ensued. And it's just, I just, I, I can't even begin to express how, horrible i feel for everybody involved particularly you know the woman who lost her life her husband her children her family her friends all that kind of stuff but it brought up an issue that i discussed the other day that i have been saying for about five or six years i mean i don't think we've ever made it a topic on one of the shows but i've been saying for five or six years ever since me and dennis had a conversation about this like half a decade ago that with today's simple, easy technology, I have never understood why there is a need, especially after the tragedy that happened to Brandon Lee, why any movie uses live guns, blanks or not. I, I have no idea why. Because besides the fact that some people have gotten killed, you know, there's been there's been a lot of injuries, burns and things like that that have happened as a result, injuries that happened as a result of using these weapons on screen. And I said, I just felt for years, there is no excuse for using these things on sets. In 15 minutes, you can add very realistic looking muzzle flashes and smoke if you need to in post-production. It's the super easiest thing in the world. Hell, there are plugins you can get on your damn iPhone or Android phone that would put it in there if you needed to. And there's even like prop guns that are just like have these air discharge. I think they're called air gun or something like that. I can't remember what they're called in the movie terms, but that will give you a little bit of recoil. If you're worried about the natural look of recoil, these things will give you recoil without having to put blanks or any kind of gunpowder into these things. Anyway, it looks like that's finally going to start happening. 
as it's being reported that the show, The Rookie, that I really enjoy, is going to be moving in that direction. This comes to us from the showrunner of The Rookie, uh, Alexi Hawley, who writes, The tragic events in New Mexico yesterday have shaken us all, and our hearts go out to the friends and family of Helena Hutchins and Joel Souza. Uh, As of today, it is now policy on The Rookie that all gunfire on set will be airsoft, so they're called airsoft, will be airsoft guns with CG muzzle flashes added in post. There will be no more live weapons on the show. The safety of our cast and crew is too important. Any risk is too much risk. As always, if you ever feel unsafe or witness anything that concerns you, please don't hesitate to report it. My door is always open. Now, it should also be uh, pointed out here that they've been using these airsoft guns on the rookies for all their indoor scenes. Like whenever there's gunfights happening indoors they have been using airsoft guns and adding muzzle flashes and things like that in post anyway they've only ever used quote-unquote live guns for big outdoor set pieces but now that's been changed as well and it's going to go to another thing and my question is why is it taking this long and i applaud alexi and the the production behind the rookie for making this move but why is it taking this long for why is every show not doing this why is every movie not doing this look when you walk onto a movie set there is some inherent risk a movie set can be a very treacherous place there's extremely heavy equipment constantly hovering over your head there's massive amounts of power and electricity with these cables running all over the place. Like, I don't know how people don't break their necks, let alone get electrocuted or whatever on these sets. There's dangerous stunts that happen. My point is, there's enough risk on a movie set naturally that there's no excuse for adding additional unnecessary risk, especially when it comes to things like firearms and things like that. So... I think this is a great move. I think we're going to see more. I think we're going to see, number one, more TV shows announce a move like this. I think we're going to hear entire movie studios make announcements pretty soon. Like, I I have no insider information, but I'm not going to be surprised if, like, within the next week or two, we might hear, if like, Paramount might come out and say, it is now policy for all Paramount pictures. It's for any of our projects. They're going to use airsoft guns when necessary. I'm not going to be surprised if we hear that as well, because, again, It's just an unnecessary risk. There are other risks on a movie set that you can't do anything about. This is a risk that doesn't need to be a part of the equation. And I think it's good that they're doing this. Anyway, the question is for you guys. What do you think about this move by the rookie? Do you think it's a good move? Do you think it's a bad move? Do you think, hey, you know, yeah, there have been injuries. And unfortunately, over the years, there have now been a couple of fatalities but this is a little bit too strong of a knee-jerk reaction. Maybe you think it is. Maybe you think this is long overdue. Whatever you guys are feeling, jump down into the comments section below and let me know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number two. And our second main topic today gets submitted to us by Aiden, who writes, Hey, John and crew. I know you put out your out-of-theater reaction for Eternals, but the review embargo has now been lifted as of Sunday. Yes, it was lifted on Sunday. I was wondering, uh, I was wondering if your spoiler, what your spoiler-free thoughts on the movie are. Did it live up to your expectations? All right, thanks a lot, so much, man, for sending in the question. And yes, Eternals 
the review embargo is lifted. Now, of course, I saw Eternals twice last week, and I was allowed to give a quick social media reaction, so I did my quick out of the theater, you know, my 30-second out of the theater reaction to the film, whatever. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed this film. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I said at the time that I think I still prefer Shang-Chi, and after seeing it twice and having some time to think about it, I still prefer Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi is still my favorite comic book movie of the year. Uh, so there's that Eternals, probably my second favorite comic book movie of the year. Let me answer your question and then I'll go into a little bit more detail. Did Eternals live up to my expectations? Well, you have to understand before I answer that, what my expectations were because my expectations were not small. My expectations were best picture contender maybe even best picture at the Academy Awards leading contender. You've got this rich background story. You've got the reigning uh, best director at the Academy Awards with Chloe Zhao. I absolutely loved her last movie, Nomadland. I thought it was a work of absolute genius. I think that movie's a masterpiece. I think it's, I've run out of words to describe how good I think Nomadland is. And then you had the Kevin Feige hyping in a bit, you know, all that kind of stuff. So my expectations were, this is going to be a best picture front runner. Understanding that that's what my expectations were. Did Eternals live up to those best picture contender expectations? No, they didn't. They did not. Um, I enjoy the movie. I think it's really good. I actually, I think it's a phenomenal film. I mean, what they were able to do with this film, it's a very different MCU film. It's packed with great new universe expanding mythology. It's really bold and a very good movie. I've seen it twice. I will probably see it at least two or three more times once it comes out in theaters. But did it live up to my best picture contending expectations? No, no, it did not. Do I think it's the best comic book movie of the year? No, I still give that to Shang-Chi. I really love that film, man. So let's talk about it for a second. Now, I'm going to let you know, I'm going to avoid any major spoilers. I'm not going to give away major plot points. I'm not going to give away major surprises here. But I am going to talk a bit about what the movie is about. So if you're somebody that you don't want to know the slightest detail of this movie, you might want to turn out. I'm not going to go into big spoilers, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to set up the movie for you, give you some idea about what it's generally about so I can give my commentary on it. So basically I was, my jaw was on the floor right from the opening shot of the movie. Cause I'll tell you what the opening shot is. It's a black screen with text that basically sets the stage and the stage is this and it's huge and has massive implications. It says the celestials, particularly Arashim, and I hope I'm not mispronouncing his name. I think it's Arashim. I think that's how you pronounce this celestial's name. The big giant red celestial you see in the trailers. He is like the prime celestial. That basically Arashim created our universe. He created our sun. He created the planets and all this kind of stuff. And Arashim is there. Now, I can't, I've seen the movie twice and I've missed it both times. And a new celestial is born like every million or billion years. I can't, I, like, I've seen it twice and I keep missing. Was that an M or a B? But at any rate, so the celestials are these 
massive, you know, important galactic interstellar beings that literally bring forth life into the universe. That is what these celestials do. That's the type of scale we're talking about that this movie has. It basically introduces creation ideal into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which he never really had. As a matter of fact, right at the beginning of the movie, it basically tells you these celestials, Arashim, has been around before the Infinity Stones even existed. Before the Infinity Stones even existed. Now, of course, he then creates the Eternals as well. And the idea is this. And this is this is all just right set up right at the beginning of the movie. So Arashim wants life to thrive on planets, right? But there are these beings, these creatures known as the deviants, which you see in the trailers. And they arrive on a planet and they threaten the life flourishing on that planet. So what Arashim does is he sends his Eternals, led by the prime Eternal, Ajax, which is Salma Hayek, and he sends his Eternals to worlds to counteract the deviants. But as you see in the trailer, they have very specific instructions. They cannot interfere in the conflicts of humanity other than when deviants are involved. That's it. That's their main direct. That's their, in Star Trek terms, that is their prime directive. They can't do anything other than when deviants are are involved. Now, as the Eternals head to Earth and do their things, we see the first interactions between them, and we see Icarus, uh, played by Rob Snow, of course, and we see Cersei, uh, played by Gemma Chan, and we see in the trailers there's a love interest there, there's a romance. So there's a real family bond that the Eternals eventually begin to make with each other. They consider themselves a family. And through the centuries and thousands of years, that's what they've done. But now something has happened. There's something coming called the emergence that they talk about in the trailer. You hear them reference the emergence. Now, I'm not going to say what the emergence is. You guys will have to wait for that a little bit. So I'm not going to say what the emergence is. But uh, there's this event now coming called the emergence that is, you know, bringing Eternals and Deviants heading towards a big conflict again and a lot of other stuff. And there you have it. So when I start, and, and then it poses a big question. The movie poses a massive question that our heroes have to wrestle with. Should humanity be saved in light of, could there be a greater good? And I'm I'm not going to say what that is. But I love this question in this movie because I love it when heroes are forced with morally compromising uh, dilemmas that they have to face and struggle with, and even they're not 100% sure what the answers are. And even the Eternals themselves have disagreement over what's the right answer, and as they and they work through all this together. And I love that. I love the complete expanding of the universe. Like, when we talk about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we're talking about New York City most of the time, you know, <laughs> or at least at the very minimum, Earth, and to some degree, once, you know, maybe we'll go to Titan, but this with Arashim and the Celestials, it takes it to a whole nother level. A whole nother level. It expands the MCU to a degree that we never really would have thought possible. 
yeah, we had Guardians of the Galaxy, and yes, we have Thanos, and th- but you're ba- you're you're now dealing with entities that created life in the universe, and that is a level of boldness that I don't think we have seen in the MCU so far. That I don't really think we've seen in comic book movies so far. I love the performances in this thing. Uh, Gemma Chan was great. Angelina Jolie is great. Selma Hayek is great. Uh, oh my God. I love, 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 love Kamel Nagiani in this movie. Kamel Nagiani in this movie is Kingo. I, I, I didn't know whether he could fit in this movie. I was like a lot of other people when they announced that Kamel Nagiani was going to be in this film. I was like, really? Really? Kamel Nagiani. Okay. And I didn't really know what to think of it, even though I am a big fan of his. But he, I'm not saying he steals the movie. He doesn't steal the movie, but he steals every scene he's in. <laughs> like when he's in a scene, he just kind of steals the scene. The whole cast was fantastic. And one of the things that Chloe Zhao does really, really great in this movie is the interpersonal relationships and the different dynamic that each of the um, Eternals has with each other. Like, it's not just Angelina Jolie's relationship with uh, Gilgamesh, but then she has a very different type of relationship with Ajax and then a very different type of relationship with Cersei. And, and, and that plays out that you get all these Eternals and each one of them have a very unique relationship with each of the others. And what you get sometimes in movies like this is that when you have these ensemble movies, Character A has the exact same con- exact same type of relationship with character B as they do with C, as they do with D, as they do with E, unless one of them's a romantic relationship, then that one's a little bit different. This one, the dynamics between every pairing of the Eternals is very unique. That's the way it is in real life, and I love the way they did it. Whenever the Eternals were just on screen even talking to each other, I loved it. I thought the action in the film was fantastic. The action is great. There are a couple of complaints that I have about the movie, though, that take it from, you know, this could be a contender for best picture or this could be a contender for my favorite comic book movie of the year and and lands it very affirmatively behind movies like Shang-Chi and we'll see what happens with Spider-Man No Way Home later on. Number one was The Deviants. I understand the role that the deviants have to play in this movie. I do. And I'm not going to go into any spoilers here, so I'm going to have to stay pretty vague. But the way they used the deviants, I thought was a bit of a waste, to be honest. And they even made a creative decision with the deviants. You know, at one point in the trailers, you see the one deviant holding Angelina Jolie saying, you can't save any of them. How they got to that point really didn't make much sense as far as like from the deviant point of view goes. And I'll, I'll just finish it off by saying I thought the deviants were kind of a wasted opportunity. Yeah, they served as really good cannon fodder for the Eternals to show off their badassness. But there were supposed to be more than that in this movie. And I think there was an opportunity for them to be more in this movie. And they even tried a little bit but I feel like they dropped the ball on it. And that felt pretty unsatisfying. That felt pretty unsatisfying to me. So that was one of the the major things to me. The second thing was there's an over 
arcing kind of problem presented with uh, um, with the celestial, Arashim, that I can't talk about in any sort of detail. Although the way they end the movie with Arashim is very, very, I really like what they do with him at the end of the movie and all that kind of stuff. But again, no details, can't give any of that away at this point. So I thought the dialogue was great. I... By the way, Kit Harrington is great in this movie. I love Kit Harrington's character in this movie. Can I just say, love him. Absolutely love Kit Harrington's uh, character in this movie. Um, Richard Madden as Icarus, fantastic. He's the dynamic. I, I'll bring up this image again, but the the dynamic and the relationship between Icarus and Cersei was just so well done. Like you could feel the roller coaster of emotions and you felt for them and all this kind of stuff. And then you have Kit Harrington in it. And by the way, there is they're both in the movie, so this is not a spoiler, but there's a scene where you have Richard Madden and Kit Harrington, you know, meeting face to face. And it's like you could feel the energy in the audience both times I saw it's like, ha, ha, you got the Stark brothers there. Very cool, right? So that was kind of fun. Um, at any rate, so this is a bold, ambitious, dense, extremely universe-expanding movie that they went for here. And for the vast majority of the time, it really clicks and it really works. There are some drawbacks to the film, such as the deviants were underused, and when they tried to do more ambitious things with the deviants, and you'll see what I mean when you see the movie... I felt like they made some really questionable and quite frankly confusing decisions about what to do with the deviants as they move forward. That kind of just left me shaking my head going, what was, how does that make sense? Again, I can't go into details, but you'll see what I mean when you see it. Uh, that, that kind of hindered the film and made it slow down a lot for me. The individual Eternals were fantastic and great, but it still comes down to this. And I said this in my initial thoughts on Eternals. And that was, when I came out of it, I said, this is such a different kind of movie. Like, the MCU does, and you've heard me say this before, the MCU does such a great job of mixing up their movies, so none of them are really alike. Like, Ant-Man is more straight-up comedy. Winter Soldier is like a 70s political thriller. Doctor Strange is something else completely different. Uh, Shang-Chi is very different, like a Wushu movie that, as opposed to anything else. But at the end of the day, all of those very different movies still share and have that Marvel MCU DNA to it. They're very different films, but you still walk out feeling like I just saw an MCU film. And that's a good thing. You don't get that feeling with Eternals, in my opinion. It does not have the MCU DNA to it. And that leaves me wondering... I don't know how the average MCU movie fan is going to respond to this movie. Like, because to me, it's it's wonderful. Like, it really works. It's a thinking man's MCU movie. Not that the other ones aren't. I'm just saying, you know, it, it asks bigger questions. It gets more, not just metaphysical, but it gets more into the existential, like the existential questions that the characters are posed with and we as the audience are posed with. It's much more character-centered. Um, 
And it's a different kind of movie. And I'll be honest with you, while I walked out having really enjoyed it, I simply don't know how the average MCU fan is going to respond to it. Like, when I came out of Shang-Chi, I said very confidently, I think the vast majority of you guys are really going to have fun with this movie. And sure enough, you did. Because it that's what it was. It was, it was like designed for that, and it delivers on that really great experience. This movie is designed to be something very different. And how people are going to respond to it, I just don't know. And even the critic ratings right now kind of reflect that. Like last night, I think it, Eternals was sitting at 70%. Today, it's jumped up to 2%, so it's gone up to 72 Maybe it'll go up a little higher. Maybe it'll be a little bit lower. And 72 is a great score for most movies, but we are accustomed to seeing higher scores for MCU films. 72 is great, but is it for a Marvel film? And I think that's a really good reflection of that. So whereas I came out and said to you guys, after seeing Shang-Chi, y'all are going to love this movie, super fun, blah, blah, blah. And sure enough, most of you did. I don't know how you're going to feel about Eternals. I think this is, again, one of the most different comic book movies, not just for the MCU, but one of the most different comic book movies ever made. And it's going to appeal to certain sensibilities and not to others. And yes, the post credit scenes are fantastic. But I'm going to be very curious on the Sunday after Eternals opens for us to do our open spoiler discussion and really hear from you guys what you thought and what your experience was. Because this is this is going to be one of those more interesting Marvel films to see how people react to it. And I honestly don't know how people will. I know that I enjoyed it a lot. It's certainly, you know, a hell of a lot better than some of the other shite that Marvel has put out, you know, in terms of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or the Inhumans or, or what have you or that... Hawkeye trailer. John, don't go to the Hawkeye trailer again. Okay, I won't. I won't open that can of worms. But um, for me, I can all I can do is speak for myself. I really, really did like this movie a lot. Um, we really, really, I really like this movie a lot and really like this movie a lot. Uh, not as much as Shang-Chi. Won't be my favorite comic book movie of the year. But I think it's a it's a bold step that's trying to expand the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I don't think it's going to work for everybody. But anyway, guys, those are my little bit more in-depth thoughts on Eternals. Uh, I cannot wait for you guys to see it and for me to hear your responses. I honestly think there's going to be a lot of you guys that think this is the greatest comic book movie ever made. And I also think there's going to be some of you guys that see it and think it might be one of the worst comic book movies ever made. It's that kind of film. So whatever you guys are thinking right now, jump on down to the comment section below and let me know your thoughts. Okay, guys. With that down, let's now move on to main topic number three, shall we? And our third main topic today gets submitted to us by Kyle. And Kyle writes, Hey, John. So it looks like Brendan Fraser is going to be playing the villain Firefly in the upcoming HBO Max Batgirl project. I love Brendan and Doom Patrol so much, dude. So do I. Uh, so I am freaking hyped here. What are your thoughts? Thanks. All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yeah, you know, it's funny because it was just either yesterday or a couple of days ago that somebody wrote in and said, Hey, you know, John, I used to love Brendan Fraser, love seeing him in, um, you know, uh, The Mummy and things like that. And he said, do you think we could see him return to do those, those types of roles, like the roles he played in The Mummy, kind of Indiana Jones types roles? 
And what I said at the time was, dude, I love Brendan Fraser too. I've actually loved Brendan Fraser since George of the Jungle. That's right, George of the Jungle with Leslie Mann. I loved him in that movie. I Listen, I, unapologetically, I love that movie just in general. I just thought that movie was a lot of fun. I still to, do to this day, and I still love Leslie Mann to this day too, at any rate. And then, you know, then you realize, then, you know, he did things like Encino Man and some other things like that. And it wasn't until he did that movie with Joe Pesci called With Honors that I was like, oh my God, not only is this Brendan Fraser dude like have a really great charisma on screen as a real fun presence on screen. Holy shit, this dude can act. Man, is this guy good. And then I really became kind of enamored with him as an actor and a performer. Now, what I said in the companion video, you know, Brendan Fraser is in a different place right now physically. So I don't see him doing those high adventure Indiana Jones or the mummy roles anymore, maybe. But I don't know. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. And we talked about the fact that we've been seeing him pop up in more stuff lately. His name's getting mentioned and announced in more and more things lately, which is great to see because I'd love to see a uh, Frasier You know, there you go. I coined the phrase, the Frasier We had the McConaissance. Now we're going to have the Frasier I, I think we are poised for Frasier Anyway, in that environment, yesterday came the news that he's actually going to be the villain in the Batgirl series. This comes to us from the folks over at Variety who writes, Brendan Fraser has been cast in DC's upcoming Batgirl movie. He will play the villainous Firefly, which is interesting. A sociopath with a passion for pyrotechnics, opposite star Leslie Grace, who was fantastic in In the Heights earlier this year. Specific plot details for Batgirl have been kept under wraps, though it centers on Barbara Gordon, the daughter of Gotham Police Commissioner Jim Gordon. J.K. Simmons is returning to portray Jim Gordon after first portraying the character in Zack Snyder's Justice League. That comes to us from the folks over at Variety. All right. First things first. I love this. Anything that announces that Brendan Fraser is going to be in it, I love. So I'm all on board for this. It's very curious, though, to me that the villain they chose, Firefly. Now, Firefly is a character who is very different today than what it was in its inception. Because when Firefly first arrived in the comics, which I think was like, I don't know, 60s or 70s or something like that, Firefly was this character who basically used lighting effects. Like it was a light expert and would use lighting effects to pull off crimes, for lack of a better way to describe it. Then around the crisis era, they totally changed the character into more of what Variety describes as a sociopathic uh, pyromaniac, right? Now, the TV show Gotham that was on recently, they had a female version of the Firefly character there. There's been a lot of different iterations in the animated shows and whatever, Firefly as well. And actually, kind of, it's kind of come to the point, oh, hello, Grizzly. Go on. <laughs> Grizzly just opened my door and came walking right in. Okay, go lay down. All right, anyway. Sorry about that. Got distracted a little bit. Um, has actually become like one of the more kind of mainstay villains in the uh, Batman kind of hierarchy of, of his uh, rogues gallery, right? So it's a very interesting choice. It's not, at least to me, I can't speak for anybody else. I have never really personally identified Firefly with Batgirl, 
per se, but maybe there has been story arcs in the Batgirl comics that I'm not aware of. That's fine. But it makes sense that they're going to use a bat, a bat family kind of villain for this. And in this case, it's going to be Brendan Fraser. Now, let's talk about Brendan Fraser for a second, because this isn't like the first thing. He re- There really is a, a Fraser-sance going on. Um, this also is from Variety here. Batgirl is in Frasier's first foyer into the DC Universe. He's currently voices a character in the HBO Max superhero TV show Doom Patrol, which he is so good. I love that character in Doom Patrol so much. Um, anyway, it does, however, continues a career resurgence for the George of the Jungle and the Mummy Star, who all but disappeared from Hollywood in the mid-2000s. He's since emerged in Steven Soderbergh's crime dom- drama, No Sudden Move, and Danny Boyle's Trust on FX. Fraser recently landed the lead role in Darren Aronofsky's next film, The Whale, an adaptation of Samuel D. Hunter's play about 600-pound middle-aged recluse, and he will be seen in Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, which my accountant's wife is actually one of the stars of that movie. Anyway, alongside Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, uh, Deadline was the first to report on this casting. The the Fraser sense, ladies and gentlemen, it's happening. It's real. Embrace it. Own it. Love it. Uh, I think this is great. I really do. And I've been wanting to see this guy return. As a matter of fact, even when he popped up, do you guys remember when he popped up quickly in that Channing Tatum G.I. Joe movie? He had like one scene in it. He had like one scene in that movie. And I was like, yeah. And all of a sudden I liked the movie more just because he popped up in it. Now, where's his career going to go right now? I don't know. It's going to be really interesting to see with all these new opportunities. Like he's Marty Scorsese, Aronofsky, Soderbergh. I mean, he's working now with the top of the top. But to me, he'll always be this guy. He'll always be this guy. I don't care. I love him in Doom Patrol. Now, granted, the number one word he uses in his dialogue and vocabulary is the word fuck. I would be actually very interested. I don't know if any of you guys have an actual report. How many times has he said fuck in that show? It's got to be in the, uh, without exaggeration, it's got to be in the thousands. It has to be in the thousands. But at any rate, I love this character so much. I love him voicing this character. I love it when we actually get to physically see him uh, in the role as well. It's just so good. It's just so good. And to seeing how he's doing this now. But again, I will be very interested to see now that he's getting all these opportunities to work with Soderbergh, to work with um, Aronofsky, to work with Marty Scorsese. Where is that going to put him once those projects are done? Will this just be a short kind of flash that we get him back? Or will this signal a new long-term thing that, no, Brendan Fraser is back, man. He's back, and he's going to be a mainstay in our movies for the next 10, 15, 20 years. I hope that. So we'll have to see. Anyway, question is for you guys. What do you think about this, about Brendan Fraser being cast as Firefly to be the villain in the upcoming Batgirl HBO Max movie? Whatever you guys are feeling about this, jump down into the comments section below and let us know your thoughts okay guys with that down let's now move on and start taking your live comments and questions shall we once again if you want to send in a live comment or question to be read on this show or an upcoming companion video simply use the tip link down in the description below or enter it in manually at www.streamelements.com slash movie blog tv 
slash tip. You'll be getting your comment or question read on a show if we deem your comment or question appropriate to be read on the show. And of course, you'll be supporting the channel at the same time. And all of us involved here with the John Campus Show, thank you guys so much for that support. All right, let's get to it now. We're going to start things off here with Mark2021, who writes, Hi, John. Disney Hercules is my all-time favorite animation. Really? That's interesting. I don't hear a lot of people saying that. And not just from Disney. And I remember before uh, on the show that news came that the Russos, that's the Russo brothers of MCU fame, were doing a live-action version of the film. We haven't heard anything since. Do you think it's still going ahead? Thanks. Yeah, one of the more interesting announcements that's come out over the last couple of years, I think I might have still been at Collider when this news first came out, to be honest. I can't remember exactly, but word came out that they were going to do, that the Russo brothers for Disney were going to do a live-action version of the Hercules animated movie, which everybody thought was very interesting and very cool. Now, we haven't heard a lot since, but it hasn't been all radio silence. I think it was back in January or February, the Russos came out and made a statement that, yeah, hey, we're still working on this thing. The first draft of the completed script is due to come in. Uh, They said, I think it was going to be like next week, but this was like back in February or January. Uh, And then we're going to keep refining it because the Russos were saying, this movie is so important to us and our kids. We want to make something here that is going to be talked about, not just be a big hit now. We want to make a movie that's going to be talked about that, you know, People watching it now will share it with their kids. We want to make it very special, blah, blah, blah. So as of earlier this year, they're still working on it. Where they're at right now, I don't know, but I still believe this film is a project we're going to see moving forward. Okay, next up, uh, where are we at? Uh, IMAV writes, is Chris Stuckman still making a horror movie? I, I haven't heard him say anything otherwise, unless I missed something. He's still moving ahead and making that horror movie, I believe. Also, thoughts on the Alec Baldwin tragic shooting? Well, I've talked a lot in recent days about my thoughts on the Alec Baldwin situation. It's really unfortunate. It's still hilarious to me. Well, I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to go into it again. Look, it's just, it's a horrible, tragic situation. I feel badly for everybody involved. Obviously Helena who, who died um, and her family, her husband, her children, her parents, her friends, Uh, her siblings. I mean, that's, it's just the worst, but it's just, it's really, really tragic. Uh, More and more information is coming out um, that showed that this was, (sighs) the whole IATSE potential strike situation. This is going to bring a lot of that up again about working conditions, about safety on set about making sure things are being done right, uh, all these types of things. Because, man, what we're hearing coming out of Rust is really a litany of parables about the dangers of working on Hollywood sets these days, or of any movie set, of any movie set, especially when proper time and money and attention and safety isn't followed. And it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see what more comes out of this. All right. Next up. Uh, Sweet but a bit salty writes. Uh, would love to have seen uh, Lee Wanell make Halloween with his amazing action and suspense. But that fire scene in Halloween Kills, best Halloween moment ever for me. That got me the chills, man. Uh, David knew how to make the best Michael, but nothing else. Yeah, I mean... 
I don't, I don't know if we Lee Wanell would be the guy to do that, to be honest with you. I'm not sure. And I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't think that fire scene was all that special. That, that's just me in my opinion. I didn't think that fire scene was all that special. If anything, it was like a bad old Kung Fu. You remember, it, like, there were great old Kung Fu movies. But it might be like the bad old Kung Fu movie when the hero would be there. And it's like, oh, there's a gang of nine guys. But very strategically, only one of the nine guys who was fighting would ever do anything at once. Like, eight of them would stand back while one would move forward. Ah, and then he get hit. And then the next one would move forward. Ah, ah, then he get hit. I remember laughing in Halloween Kills at that scene where he emerges from the fire. You see that in the trailers. I'm not spoiling anything. Where he merges out of the fire and, like, there's these 10 or 11 first responder dudes there. Just the way that whole went down, I thought was kind of silly. But that's, hey, listen, I'm glad you enjoyed it, though, man. I'm glad you had fun with that. All right, next up. Uh, where are we at? We're at Abdullah Aziz writes part one. <clears throat> I have a theory about the Joker movie and I want your opinion on it. Arthur Flick. I think it was Fleck Fleck like with an E anyway, Arthur Fleck is not the Joker. He is the one who inspired the Joker. The guy in the last scene of the movie, I'll name him Joaquin since I do not know the Joker's real name. Uh, it is not uh, Arthur Fleck. He is the Joker who's inspired by Arthur, Arthur Fleck. Joaquin pretended to be Arthur and he just projected himself to Arthur Fleck's story. We do not know what Arthur Fleck, uh, we do not know what Arthur Fleck may look like the guy who murdered the Wayne family is the Joker Joaquin the director hid his face with a clown mask so we do not recognize him as a younger version of Joaquin uh, and that is the main reason for his laugh in front of the psychiatrist and remembering the scene where Bruce is standing in front of his uh, dead parents since Arthur did not attend that scene. I see this theory is reasonable since the time gap between the Joker and Batman is acceptable. If we assume that Bruce is around 10 years old and that Joaquin is a teenager, 17 to 19, that means the time age difference uh, is only seven to nine years. What do you think and who do you think will take the role for the Joker in the new Batman other than Joaquin? I think Warner Brothers will commit a big mistake if they present another new Joker rather than leave the Bat trilogy without a Joker. All right. Thanks a lot for saying that in, man. And... I'll, I do not agree, Abdullah, with your theory whatsoever, because your theory assumes a couple of things. It assumes that they had future plans for this Joker after this movie, and we know for a fact they did not. They had no future plans for this. And the whole premise of your theory seems to be built upon an assumption that there were future plans. Therefore, that Joker was not the other Joker. It was just him projecting that in and all that kind of stuff. And we just simply know that that's not the case. The second thing is that it seems to miss the point that this was meant to be a standalone movie and both the director and the actor himself have always talked about this is a character study of this one guy. They have never phrased it in any other way. Uh, and so they have themselves given no inclination or any um, hints that there was something more to it than that. This was a character study about a guy and kind of a look at the effects of mental health and societal pressures and stuff like that. And... I really don't see in the movie, and I saw it three or four times, I don't see any of that in the movie. I think it is a very creative, I think it is a very creative 
um, way of looking at it. I really do, but I, I don't agree. Now, that's not to say that I have spoken to Joaquin Phoenix and he has personally told me that that theory is wrong. No, not at all. I mean, maybe it is right. But I don't see anything to back it up, to be honest with you. So I think it's a fun theory. I think it's very creative thinking on your part. I really like that. But I got to say, I personally disagree. I don't think there's any indication that that was actually the case. But keep up the creative thinking, man. I really do appreciate that as a fellow fan. All right, next up, uh, we've got GQ who writes, Hey, Gio, I hated Halloween Kills. It's so cringy, and basically Michael Myers is officially Superman. Hell, even Superman died. Yeah, I'm not going to go into the details of the film, but uh, yeah, I, I was very disappointed with Halloween Kills, and that's coming from a guy who loved the 2018 uh, one, the, the first one. I love the 2018 one. I had so much fun with that, so I was so excited for this one. Yeah, for me, it... Uh, just didn't uh, didn't live didn't live up to it for me, man. Just didn't live up to it for me. All right, next up, uh, Gabster three thousand writes, John, love your show and the quick movie theater reaction videos. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate that. I'm start I'm starting to start. Try it again. I am starting to start a movie review blog. Any tips, suggestions? Thanks and keep up the filthy. Um, the best thing to do would be to go onto YouTube and search for John Campia getting started. Uh, it'll bring up or, you know, there's another one here. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, give me a one quick second here because I recently did a video of uh, how to YouTube. I think that's that was the name of it. Yeah. So if you look up right here, uh, if you if you search YouTube for how to YouTube, you should come across this video, how to YouTube with John Campia. However, uh, there's also a, another video uh, we'll just call getting started John Campia. And if we search getting started John Campia, you'll come across this other video here that I made. Oh my God, it's now seven years ago. I made this video seven years ago called getting started an online film talk on your own blog, YouTube channel, or podcast. And it's really not just about if you want to start a, uh, a movie blog, uh, podcast or YouTube channel. It's really a, t- pertains to anything so and that video is like two hours long actually the how to youtube video is almost three and a half hours long the getting started on youtubing is like almost two hours long so i would really recommend you go find those videos and i give every bit of insight that i possibly can on that so best of luck to you man i hope you have some success all right next up uh we've got cody hunt films rights I just attended the music of John Williams performed by the Kansas City Symphony, and I was blown away. I was grinning ear to ear hearing the Jurassic Park theme live. It was my first time at a symphony and certainly won't be my last. What an incredible experience. I'm glad you did that, man. Listen, I'll tell you what. Every year, uh, other than the pandemic year, uh, John Williams holds a concert at the Hollywood Bowl. It's called the Maestro of the Movies concert, where he plays... You know, just all of his greatest stuff. And he co- he also has uh, David Newman come and do some conducting as well. And it's always one of the highlights of my, my year. I always love that stuff. So good on you for going to that event, man. All right, next up. We've got Scott Brown who writes, Recently, you mentioned taking weekends off. Yeah, I've been trying, but it hasn't been working out so well. Uh, you absolutely should take whatever time off you need. We're all grateful to get the content we get, and no one wants you to get burned out. So please uh, take your rest. We will all be here when you get back. Yeah, I made a promise to myself recently. I was going to start taking weekends off. I don't think I've taken a single one off yet. There's just always too much to do. 
But um, I'm going to do some things in the near future that I'm going to hope will allow me to start taking weekends off. I hope. Um, but I've, I've got a plan right now. It's going to involve me hiring another staff person. Uh, and I'm hoping that doing that will allow me to actually have my weekends off and not have to work on the weekends. That would be sweet. I would love that a lot. So I'm working towards it, man. I'm working towards it. All right. Uh, next up, we've got uh, Scott Brown also writes, Saw Dune in an IMAX, and it was glorious. The cinematography was beautiful, and the acting was excellent. I also thought it did a good job of explaining things without being too heavy. I had a blast and could have easily watched three more hours. I, I thought Dune was absolutely fantastic. I loved it. Uh, obviously, we're also hearing from, we're hearing from a lot of people who loved it. We're hearing from some people who didn't. I don't understand how you don't like this movie. But that's okay, because all film is subjective. We're allowed to have different opinions on that. That's great. But yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what, man. Uh, I've seen Dune twice now, and I I don't get it. Like, a lot of movies that I love, I get why it might not be for you. Like, even Eternals, right? Like, I really like Eternals, but I get why some people won't. It's not going to be for everybody. I get that. But there are every once in a while, there's a movie that I think is just so well done that I don't get people who don't like it. And that's okay. That's totally fair. That's totally fair. Um, it doesn't mean they're not allowed to not like it. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them for not like it. I'm just saying I don't get it. Because to me, I just see nothing but brilliance in this. But Eternals is one of those for me. I'm glad it is for you too, Scott. All right. Or sorry, uh, uh, Dune is for me. I hope it is for you as well. All right. Next up. Uh, let's see. Dangerous D writes, Hey, John, have you heard of this crowdfunding studio called Legion M? Yeah, they've been around for like a decade, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, they produce TV and movies. They have already projects like Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back, Memory of the Story of Alien, Icons, uh, Face to Face. They have a spot to invest in Start Engine. I don't know what that means, but yeah, Legion M has been around for a very, very long time, as a matter of fact. And if you want to know about them, just hop on YouTube or on uh, Google, whatever, search them up. But they've been doing this for quite a while. It's not a new thing. All right, next up, Adam Smith writes, Hey, John, I know you don't really believe in Oscar snubs, but I was really disappointed that Patrick Stewart didn't get nominated for Logan in 2017. I thought he killed it. Do you think Logan being a comic book movie had anything to do with that? No, zero. Absolutely not. Because if the Oscars snubbed him because it was a comic book movie, then explain why they gave one of the highest honor nominations to them in Best Screenplay. Like that is one of the, the like there's a tons and tons and tons of Oscars get handed out. But then there's the big five, you know, uh, acting, best picture, uh, directing, writing, the screenplay. The screenplay is one of the big five awards and they gave best screenplay nomination, which is a more prestigious nomination than, than say best supporting actor. They gave Logan first comic book movie in history that they gave a best screenplay nomination to. Now, do I think Patrick Stewart should have been given a nomination for best supporting actor for his performance in Logan? Yes, I do. Was it a snub? No, it wasn't a snub. People use the word snub way too loosely. To me... A snub is only truly a snub when it is almost indefensible. And the only way it's indefensible is if you can make 
a solid legitimate argument that that nominee should clearly have won the award. If you can't make the argument that this nominee clearly should have won the award, then them not getting nominated isn't really a snub. You know, there were other completely fantastic performances that year. Would I have given him a nomination? Absolutely. Do I think he should have gotten a nomination? Absolutely. Do I think it was a snub that he didn't? No, I don't. Because there were a lot of great performances that year and and all the nominees were deserving. Uh, But I absolutely do not think it had anything to do with the fact that it was a comic book movie uh, because they did give Logan an even more prestigious nomination in screenplay. So I don't think that at all. And every year, every year, whenever the acting nominations get announced, actor, actress, supporting actor, supporting actress, every year, there are names that get left out that aren't in comic book movies. And people think that person should have got a nomination. Well, they didn't get left out because it was a comic book movie because it wasn't a comic book movie they were in. So I thought he was great. I thought he should have got a nomination, but I don't consider it a snub that he didn't. And I certainly don't think it had anything to do with the fact that Logan was a comic book movie. Uh, that's just my take. Thanks for answering the question, Adam. Good question, man. All right, next up. Uh, Karma736 writes, number one of two. Hey, John. Uh, I've been watching uh, since episode seven review, but first time writing in. Well, good to have you here, Karma. Thanks for writing in. Sadly, due to COVID down here in Australia, Dune doesn't come out until December. So I've been watching loads of cast interviews to keep my hype going. In all of these interviews, the cast seemed to genuinely love working with Denis, uh, Denis Villeneuve. Do you think this, along with amazing vision, is what makes him one of the best directors of his generation? Being able to inspire creativity and have a rich pool of ideas rather than one man's vision. Well, here's the thing. I don't believe there is any one right way to direct a movie. I don't believe that. Like, there are some directors who are, it is my way, or the highway. This movie is my vision, and you are here to help me bring my vision to life. And the results of that have been some of the greatest motion pictures of all time. There are some directors who are very collaborative, who, you know, they have an idea for their movie, but they want to get some talented people around them, and they want to pick their ideas too, and they want to let everybody kind of contribute and blah, blah, blah. And that has resulted in some of the greatest movies of all time. Just as a one person, it's my way, the highway, this is my vision, this is what we're here to do. They've created some of the greatest movies of all time, too. I don't believe there's any one right way to do it. I believe that every director has their own way of approaching a a project, of approaching telling their story, and it either works or it doesn't. I've seen a lot of very collaborative movies suck. I've seen a lot of very one man's only visions suck. And I've seen both of them make some of the greatest movies of all time. I don't think there's one right way. When I hear people talking about Denis Villeneuve, though, I mean, you go all the way back to Arrival, uh, Passengers, um, you know, things like that. They love working with him. What I often hear from people, and, and you know, you hear this from Jake Gyllenhaal, you you heard this from Hugh Jackman, you heard this from from everybody who's worked with him, is that they're just so inspired by his clarity of vision. They seem to be completely inspired by his clarity of vision, and he's not afraid to do things on a set. And when you are an actor, you want a director like that. 
Whether it's one man's vision or more collaborative or not, you want a director who feels really bought into the vision of the film and wants to help you as you help them as well. And I think that's really something that stands out to him a lot. So, um, yeah, that's why. And, and it doesn't hurt that he just makes spectacular movies. That's all Denis Villeneuve does. He squats down and craps out excellent movies. That's all he seems to know how to do. All right, next up. Koa 1708 writes, the movies that we see in theaters, are they the same format that we get at home, HD streaming Blu-ray, except it's just projected onto a bigger, bigger screen with way better sound system? I assume everything is digital now and not in a roll form. Okay, so here's the thing, Koa. Good question. No, what you see in a movie is not just a Blu-ray then projected onto a, onto a screen. It's different. And now, look, there used to be a time when like movie theaters used to actually use film and they had film reels, I believe like a 35 millimeter film reel was equivalent to what we would call 4k today. Now back around the time of star Wars, the Phantom Menace movie theaters began the transition to digital projectors. And for a number of years, digital projectors uh, in a very different aspect ratio than what you'd get at home video most of the time. Digital projectors projected at what we would call full HD. It wasn't 1920 by 1080, but it was like 20 something something by 1080. It was basically, you know, HD kind of way, or some people call it 2K. Some people call it 2K. But back around 2010, 2011, 2012, a lot of these movie theaters that had already adopted digital, they started transitioning to 4K projectors. As a matter of fact, it was back in like 2010 that AMC announced that all of their theaters moving forward would start being equipped with, equipped with Sony 4K projectors. And they're, and they're fabulous. And that's not even counting the Dolby dual laser projection system, which is even more. So no, it's a good question. But no, what you see in... Um, what you see in a movie theater is not just what you see at home, just project on screen. It, it is different. They do have uh, differences between them, but it's a good question, Koa. Okay, next up. Uh, okay, Tim Platt writes, just saw Dune without knowing anything about it other than it was an existing property. While at first it felt like I was taking a test I hadn't studied for, I was sucked in by the performances, visuals, and score. By the time it was over, I couldn't believe two and a half hours went by. It's so good. It's going to be hard to wait for the second movie before reading the book and watching the other movies. I want to know everything about the Dune lore now. Yeah, my wife is in the same spot. Like, she fell in love with this movie, and now she's going to go out and get the book. Because she can't wait for three years to find out how it concludes. She's going to go out and get the book and start reading it. All right, next up. We got Jack Lumbers who writes, uh, one or two, I saw Dune on Saturday. I'm not a fan of the film, and I have not read the book. Uh, the movie is two and three quarters of an hour long. I think it's a little bit longer than that. And I felt the runtime. The opening with the grandmother felt like an exposition dump. Oh, I didn't. I don't agree with that at all. And the movie after the big climax just felt like it was just limited. Like it was just limiting along for about another thirty minutes until the movie ended. Probably the the blah, blah, blah. probably the stuff they left in was important for later movies. But for me, if they seem line the movie a little bit, it'd probably be more enjoyable for me. Well, I mean, that's a good ex example, Jack, because while I and a bunch of other people have written it already absolutely are in love with this movie, this movie is a masterpiece. It's brilliantly done. It's not for everybody, right? It's not going to be for everybody. No movie is. No film is. 
And there are people like yourself who went to watch it and you went with an open mind and you watch it. It didn't work for you the way it worked for us. Nothing wrong with that. And uh, I think, I mean, I don't agree with your assessment, but that's okay. We're allowed to not agree. And uh, that doesn't make your opinion any less or more valid than mine. And thanks for sharing your experience with it, man. I appreciate that. Okay, next up. Uh, Remmer Bulldog writes, uh, Hey, John, I just saw Dune and I was so disappointed with it. See, another one, Jack Lemmers. Uh, it had great visuals, but the plot was confusing. I didn't find it confusing at all. But anyway, and it was really exposition heavy and there is no payoff uh, to the ending. I I disagree. I thought, I mean, while it was definitely an abrupt ending, I thought narratively that there was huge payoff at the end for me, but that, that was just me. But anyway, you had a different experience. Remember, thanks for sharing yours. All right. Uh, Jack Lumbers writes one of two. Have you seen the animated Injustice movie? I have not. I lost all interest in it. I saw the trailer for it, and I'm like, that looks like garbage. I'm not going to watch it. Uh, whether you've seen it or not, do you think the live a- ad- do you think a live action adaptation would work? I love the story, and on a personal level, I would love to see Superman almost single handedly wiping out uh, almost the entire Green Lantern Corps. Take that, people who say that Goku would definitely beat Superman. <laughs> Goku would get crushed by Superman. Woo! Them's fighting words. Goku would get crushed by Superman. Anyway, you know the real answer to that, though, right? The real answer uh, to who would win in a fight between Goku and Superman, obviously Superman. But the real answer to, to that question is it depends who's writing it. Is a Dragon Ball writer writing the fight between Goku and Superman? Well, then they're going to make Goku win. Is a comic book writer, is a DC writer going to be writing the fight between Goku and Superman? Well, then Superman's going to win. So that's what it really comes down to. That's what it really comes down to. Okay, next up, we go to Scott Glenn writes, Hey, John, with games like Halo and The Last of Us getting TV streaming shows next year, do you think video game adaptations may be better suited for an episodic format rather than on the big screen? No. Uh, It's no secret that video game movies haven't been the best. No, they haven't, but here's the thing. I don't think which medium, like, like, do I think certain stories lend themselves better to movies and certain stories lend themselves better to an episodic format? Sure. Do I believe certain genres lean better towards cinematic? No. I don't believe at all that video games are better suited for TV series. I don't believe that at all. I believe there may be a a story in a video game that might be better suited for a movie or a story in a video game that might be better suited for a TV show. But it's far too much of a blanket statement to say uh, that's like saying comedy is best suited in a movie format. Well, no, there are some comedies that are better suited for a movie format. Then there are some comedy concepts like Friends or Seinfeld that are better suited for a television episodic format. So I I don't think you can make a blanket statement about uh, video game properties like that. And we have had no evidence one way or the other. And by the way, if you get somebody who doesn't know how to tell a story right and they make a movie out of it, it's going to come across as bad. If they do it as a TV show, it's still going to come across as bad. So let's just uh, let's just wait and see. Let's wait and see. All right. Next up, uh, Ismail Montoya writes, uh, where do you go? There he is. Uh, Hi, John. When and how will you determine your most anticipated films of 2022? I don't think I've seen all of them to release. 
oh yeah, I don't think I've seen the full list of what's coming out. But so far for you, uh, number one, the Batman. Number two, John Wick four. Number three, the Flash. And number four, Doctor Strange. Bring on the filthy and stabby stabby. I, uh, I will. Ju- I usually do my most anticipated films of the upcoming year list around late December. That's normally when I do that. Now I am doing a video coming up in the next couple of weeks of ranking for me. Now I don't normally do, you know me, I don't normally do ranking stuff. I don't do, I only do like ranking videos, maybe four or five, six times a year. I know a lot of people do them three or four times a week. I do like four or five a year, but I do have a ranking video coming up in the next few weeks where I'm going to be ranking uh, my comic book films of 2022 as far as my level of anticipation, but I will do my full real list of the overall uh, most anticipated films of 2022, probably in late December. So that's when I'll do that. All right, next up. Uh, where are we at here? Hold on a second. I'm having trouble getting this brought up on the screen. Um, do, 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 do. Give me one second. Um, okay, there we go. Now we're back. All right, next up, we got Liam O'Toole who writes, First time writing into you, John. Thank you, Liam, for being here. Uh, Thank you for all the hard work and dedication you put into the show. I appreciate that, man. I'm going to go see the French Dispatch later on today. Have you had a chance to check it out? October has been a fruitful month for movie fans. It has been great. And you know what? I'm glad you brought it up because I'm going to rush out and see the French Dispatch. I had no idea it was opening limited this weekend. So apparently, and I didn't know until I was looking at the box office results, and the French Dispatch... Actually, it didn't open in thousands of theaters, but it opened in like 40 theaters. I did not know that. I didn't know it was getting a limited rollout like that. So uh, I'm planning on seeing it this weekend. I will be getting out there to see French Dispatch this weekend. I'm not going to lie to you. I don't think the trailers have been very good. That doesn't mean I don't think the movie's going to be good. I think the movie's going to be great. But the trailers, I thought, have been pretty pedestrian. But that's just trailers. That doesn't mean the movie's going to be pedestrian. So we will wait and see. We'll wait and see. Okay, next up, uh, we've got uh, LT writes, I saw Dune last night on the big screen. The visuals had my mind blown. I went in a group, and when I asked a friend if they wanted to come, she said, I was just going to watch it on HBO Max, but yeah, I'll come. Out out here saving the box office one person at a time. All right, well, <laughs> that's good for you, man. You carry on that mission, man. You carry on that mission, LT. You save the box office one person at a time. That's And by the way, Dune, you got to see it on the big screen. I mean, I saw a report come out that said, like, of two million people, two million households watch Dune at home. They estimate that's probably about five point three million people watch it at home. That's like fifty three million dollars in box office gone because they put it on HBO. Stupid decision. Anyway, I cannot wait for uh, David Zaslav of Discovery to take over Warner Brothers and fire a bunch of the people there. That's going to be a great day. All right, next up, uh, Nicholas from Eugene, Oregon writes. Hey, John. Love your show. Thank you so much, Nicholas. Uh, wondering if what your thoughts on, on, on Nolan's upcoming Oppenheimer film. We've talked about that a lot on this show. Uh, other than what little is known about the project, what do you think we'll see? Or what would you like to see in a story like this? Yeah, so the upcoming, um, the upcoming new Christopher Nolan film, uh, Oppenheimer, is like... One of the films I'm really, really excited about, the whole notion, not just because it's a Christopher Nolan film, 
But the whole notion of a guy who is one of the guys responsible for the creation of the atomic bomb and then his regret of having a part to play in that and how he dealt with that afterwards. To me, that whole thing, everything about that is fascinating to me. Everything. The fact that they've got Killian Murphy uh, is going to be starring in it, who has worked a lot with Christopher Nolan. And Christopher Nolan is one of these directors who likes to work with actors he knows and he trusts and he feels comfortable with. So that's great. The fact that it is a Christopher Nolan film on top of all that just adds to it. I am very excited. Now, as far as what I want to see in it, I'm not one of these people who determines what the movie maker has to put in his movie. I just want to go and watch it, see the story that Christopher Nolan has to tell. And I'm very, very much looking forward to that. By the way, I just noticed we did the Liam O'Toole uh, asking about French Dispatch, and I totally didn't even notice that Liam had like tipped in like almost 60 bucks sending in that question. Liam, uh, thank you so much, man. Number one for sending in that cool question, but thank you so much for supporting the channel on that level, man. That is really, really generous of you, dude. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. All right, let's keep going here. Uh, next up, we got Bob as said by Black Adder writes. So, uh, truth, justice, and the American way. A phrase, but DC Comics no longer holds uh, holds the rights to, as they lost it as a result of the Copyright Act. But hey, let's all hope for a better tomorrow and a Man of Steel 2 starring the guy behind you. And of course, the guy behind me is uh, right over there. I would that's the, that's the movie I want to see. I want to see Man of Steel 2 or whatever movie with Henry Cavill as Superman. That's what I'm all about. Um, by the way, them changing the phrase. Uh, Superman, of course, they announced that they changed the phrase from truth, justice, and the American way to truth, justice, and a better tomorrow. That had nothing to do with losing a copyright. Star Wars does not own a copyright on, I've got a bad feeling about this. They don't own a copyright on that. Anybody can use that, but they still put that into every Star Wars thing. Superman doesn't need to have truth, justice, the American way copywritten for them to use it. That had nothing to do with why they don't use it anymore. One of our viewers wrote in after DC fandom and just made the best point possible. Truth, justice, and a better tomorrow. And of course, Superman is also known as the man of tomorrow is just a more accurate, better term for a alien uh, being who is an illegal alien in the United States and was created by a Canadian, by the way. Um, super, Superman is a global hero. And it, truth, justice, and a better tomorrow, it just works better. But listen, ultimately at the end of the day, it's not important. It's not important. If they had kept truth, justice, the American way, I would have had no problem with that. They change it to truth, justice, and a better tomorrow. That works. That works. Um, so, yeah, I think, I, look, it's just a better slogan that is more reflective of the characters of the world. Now, I saw some moron online go, well, well, should they change the name of Captain America to something more global? Well, no, that's different. Captain America is very uniquely an American hero. Yes, he is a hero to the whole world as well, but the very roots of who and what Captain America is is he is an American soldier who's 
fighting for the, I mean, he is, he kind of is the embodiment of what America is supposed to be. He's not really the embodiment of what America is, but he's the America, he's the embodiment of what America should be. So that's different from Superman. Again, an alien being who is technically an illegal alien in the United States, who was created by a Canadian. Just, it's a very different set of circumstances. It's just a very, very different set of circumstances. So I don't think you're going to hear them changing the name of Captain America anytime soon. All right, next up, we got Dangerous D who writes, Hey, John, fans are making a big deal that Superman was referenced in the Eternals movie. This is not the first time Superman was mentioned in a Marvel movie. The first Spider-Man starring Tobey Maguire, uh, Superman was mentioned and PP shouted, or Peter Parker shouted Shazam to get his web working. Yeah, listen, a lot of people, when they saw that ad where the name Superman is mentioned in Eternals, because it's in in an ad now that you can see, there are some people asking like, well, wait a minute, how did they get the rights to that? How did they, you don't need to have the rights to Superman to mention Superman. That's fair use. You can't have Superman in your movie You can't pretend like Superman is a real character in your movie universe, but Superman is a publicly known thing and you can reference those things. Superman in the MCU is a comic book character, so you can reference it. Just like you can say in a movie, oh, I had to Google something. Well, okay, you can do that. There are certain things you are allowed to do, so that is totally fair use. They didn't have to get the rights to do anything like that, so uh, they're all good. They're all good. All right, next up, uh, we've got BK Dan writes, John, someone wrote in and told you of an AI that wrote a Batman story. I remember that. Well, that being said, there will be a cast reading of an episode of Stargate uh, written by an AI, read by some of the cast of November 6th broadcast on the YouTubes. That sounds crazy. Uh, I, by the way, I really do miss Stargate. I do. Uh, I'm not really interested in this, but getting some of the cast to do a live read of a Stargate script written by an AI. I'm not going to laugh. That sounds like it could be kind of fun. That sounds like it could be kind of fun. I might be down for that. Uh, by the way, I saw BK Danson's in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, BK. Um, I've send that in to go along with this question there. Thanks for the question too, man. BK also writes, John and audience. So, uh, so, you know, just announced that everything Stargate, except for the okay movie with Kurt Russell. I love the movie with Kurt Russell and it's not just Kurt Russell. It's also Ultron uh, and uh, Raymond Reddington. Why am I freezing on his name? Guys, who is the guy in in uh, Stargate? Plays Raymond Reddington. Why am I forgetting his name? I do not know why I'm forgetting his name. Anyway, at at any at any rate, uh, Stargate leaving all streaming service for at least uh, at least for now until the Amazon. Oh, James Spader! Everybody's fire, fire, firing in the live chat. James Spader, right? James Spader. Thank you. I don't. I love James Spader. I I've met James Spader. Anyway, I like that movie. By the way. Uh, except the OK Movie with Kurt Russell is leaving all streaming services, at least for now, until the Amazon buying out MGM is done with. Yeah, and that makes sense because um, to clear way for the acquisition, remember, any contracts, let's say you have company white remote control and company black remote control, right? You have two different companies. And let's say company black remote control is about to buy out and take over company white remote control, okay? So company black remote control is about to buy out and take over company white remote control. Here's the thing. Any contracts 
that company white remote control enters into before company black remote control takes them over, company black remote control is going to be held to those contracts. They are going to be responsible for fulfilling those contracts. And you can't go, well, we're not the ones who signed those contracts. doesn't matter. If you take over this company, you now assume all their assets and liabilities and contractual obligations. So in this case, what they're really doing is making sure that they're leaving the way clear as much as possible for the acquisition. So then once Amazon takes them over, they have a lot more flexibility with that stuff. So that it seems to make sense to me on that level, at least anyway. All right. Next up, uh, that was BK. Next up, we've got the Super Korean who writes, Hey, John and Rob. Obviously, Rob's not here today or this week. Uh, so my question is on the MCU. Have Thanos and Kang ran into each other? I'm kind of thinking they had to uh, during the MCU, or maybe Kang is too smart for Thanos. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, they have definitely never met in the MCU. That they've never done. And I don't think it has anything to do with... Uh, Kang being too smart for Thanos. I mean, in the in the MCU as it is, Kang has just always stayed outside of it, per se, right? The one we met in Loki. So I don't think there's been any suggestion that the two have ever met in the MCU. Not yet. And uh, so, yeah, that's my guess at this point at any Super Korean. And now in the comics, that could be something totally different. But in the MCU, no, I do not believe that they have ever met. All right, Super Korean also writes, uh, hey, John Rob, who's not here. Uh, got some more Korean shows for you. Hometown Cha Cha Cha. I've not heard of that one. And My Name. My Name is one I have heard of. Heard some people say some really good things about My Name. It's about a mob daughter going after the people who killed her father. As a ton, has a ton of action, and I highly recommend it. Hometown Cha 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 is a feel-good show. Okay, I've never heard of that one, but My Name I've heard a few people recommend and say it's actually really, really good. So I'm going to have to keep that one uh, on my radar. Thanks for putting that on my list, man. All right. K Major writes, Hey, John, I saw Dune this weekend on the biggest screen and it was awesome. Uh, film is subjective, but I am baffled by the people who say it was boring. Everything on the screen drew me into the world deeper and it was exhilarating. I cannot wait for part two. Bring on the filthy. I'm with you, man. I mean, I love this. I think it's a masterpiece. But as we've seen, there are some people who watch it and didn't work for them, right? It's amazing. This is the great thing about movies, guys. This is the great thing about art. Is that we can all watch the same piece of art and then have very different responses and reactions to it. It can. It always hits us in very different, unique, individual ways. And some people don't like that about the movies. I think it's one of the greatest things in the... I think it is the single greatest thing about movies. The single greatest thing about the art of filmmaking is that it hits us all in different ways. And it's that that we all have different experiences with it. Some morons out there want to say, no, we all have to like the same thing and you have to dislike everything I dislike. The true movie fan is one that understands, not just understands, but celebrates the fact that movies are art and as art, they strike us in different ways. And so I may think you're a little bit crazy if you don't like Dune, but I respect it. 
And I love the fact that we have different reactions to it and we can have different experiences because you having a different experience means I get to learn something new about the movie and look at it from a way maybe I didn't look at it before. And me liking a movie that you didn't like, maybe I'm able to give you a little bit of a different way of looking at it too. And to me, it's not just something that we as film fans... The subjectivity of film is not something that we as film fans need to learn to accept. It's something that we need to embrace and celebrate. Because I think that's the best thing about movies. But that's just me. All right. But yes, K Major, I'm glad you love Dune because I think it's a masterpiece as well. All right. The, uh, the Super Korean also writes, Hey, John and Rob. Obviously, Rob's not here. Uh, have you seen the new Apple TV show Invasion? I have. Uh, I got to say I wasn't really impressed by the three episodes that just came out. Actually, it was a bit of a letdown. Guess I'll watch more Foundation and For All Mankind. Yeah, I finally sat down yesterday to watch. Now, I haven't watched the third episode yet. I only had time to get through the first two episodes. But I watched the first two episodes of of Invasion. I've been looking forward to this show. Man, it's slow. Um, it's slow. Like the idea of, okay, now we're going to meet this person and we're going to get to know about their life. And then something mysterious happens. Now let's meet this person. Let's learn a little bit about their life. And then something mysterious happens. Now let's go meet this kid listening to headphones and learn a little bit about their rough life. And then something mysterious happens. Now let's go meet this military dude. He's off in, I think he's in Afghanistan. And let's learn about what his daily life is like. And then something mysterious happens. It's like, It's been two hours of that. And I get it. Move on. So I haven't seen the third episode yet, but I have, and I will, I I will watch the third episode, but I am two episodes in and, and I'm with you, man. I'm not impressed so far. I'm hoping things pick up and like they start moving this thing a little bit forward now once we get into episode three. I don't mind the first episode being like that, I don't mind taking 45 minutes, an hour or whatever to, to kind of lay that basic groundwork, but we're over two hours into the show now and it's still the same thing. Now let's meet these, these people and something mysterious happens. Like again, there's an alien invasion. Okay, go. But I don't know. Maybe it'll have payoff. Maybe it'll all have big pay- payoff, I don't know, payoff moving forward. All right, next up. Uh, where are we at here? We are at K Major Rights. Bro, if there's time travel in Indy 5, I will be very disappointed. Uh, it would be jarring for me. It would be like watching a Predator movie and all of a sudden there's a there's a genie in it. <laughs> I gotta read that again. It would be like watching a Predator movie and all of a sudden there's a genie in it. Like, I know indie films always had a fantasy element going, uh, going but this is too far. You know what, K-Major, let, let me say this. I, in a way, agree with you because I said myself, like... Time travel does seem to be a little bit outside of the Indiana Jones franchise wheelhouse, right? It it does really seem like it would be a, a, a foreign element introduced into the cellular body of the Indiana Jones franchise. It seems a little out of character. I agree. It does. I love your analogy. Watching a Predator movie and suddenly a genie pops up. I agree. But like you pointed out yourself... The first Indiana Jones movie is about the Ark of the Covenant. That when you open it, 
angels and spirits and ghosts come flying out and melt Nazi faces and all this kind of stuff, right? I mean, so in that universe then is the idea of something that could cause time travel. Something, by the way, some scientists believe could theoretically even be possible. Could time travel be possible? I mean, I don't think so, but, uh, you know. So, I agree. It seems like it's outside of Indiana Jones's wheelhouse, and it seems weird to me. And by the way, we're not even sure that there is time travel. All the Nazi and Roman soldier stuff we've seen could just be flashbacks. But if it is, listen, it's James Mangold directing this. The guy who directed Ford v. Ferrari, the guy who directed Logan, if he's going to use time travel, again, I agree it feels a little bit outside of the wheelhouse of Indiana Jones, but if he's going to do it, I'm going to believe that he's going to have a good use for it in the story. So we'll see. We'll see. All right. Uh, next up, we've got uh, an anonymous viewer writes. I just saw Dune after you and Rob talking about it. I know you said you weren't sure how people who didn't read the book would react to it. Well, I never read the book, and I think it is the best movie I've seen in years. Totally loved it. Well, thank that. Yes, and that is something both Rob and I said. Like both Rob and I said, like really like this movie, but I just don't know if how will people because we under we already know Dune. I don't know how people who don't know anything about Dune are going to respond to it. And my wife. She thinks it's her favorite science fiction film of all time now. And then some people like you saying it's the best movie you've seen in years. I don't think it's the best movie I've seen in years, but I do think it's an incredible piece of work. So I'm glad you enjoyed it, Anonymous. I'm glad you enjoyed it. All right, next up, BK Dan writes, John, you said that the number one job is getting the best acting out of an actor. Yeah, I said the number one job of a director. The number one job of a director is to get the best performance out of the actor possible. The director has many, 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 many big responsibilities. But for my money, uh, the number one responsibility is to get the best performance possible out of the actor. Anyway, uh, John, you said that the number one job is getting the best acting out of an actor. Do you believe then that by extension, that best actor award should be a shared award between the actor and the director? That's an excellent question. And the answer is no. And here's why. While the performance that an actor gives in a movie is absolutely influenced by and and to some degree helps steered by the director, at least if you're a good actor, you take direction. <clears throat> I understand you then saying, well, if that's the case, if the director is really influential over the performance that an actor gives, should it be a shared award with the director? The reason I say no is because everything that happens on the set of a movie is influenced by the director. Like <clears throat> I was just at the uh, designing Hollywood party where they had like the costume designers for suicide squad for Schindler's list for Spider-Man, no way home for black Panther for like all these amazing iconic movies, right? They had all these costume designers there and they were talking, all of them would talk about how they work with the director. And, you know, the, the, the costume designer for this awesome lady, this costume designer for Suicide Squad talked about how she met almost daily with James Gunn. And James Gunn was directing the fashion in the movie. He was directing the costume. Like, 
it's not like the costume designer goes off and says, well, I designed everything. Now, here you go, Mr. Director. No, the director tells them what they want. And then they bring in certain ideas to the director. And the director says, okay, I like that idea. Let's lean more towards that one. Let's do this. And then their job is to go and fulfill the director's vision. But best costume designer isn't a shared Academy Award with the director, even though the director had great influence over that. Editing. The director is almost always in the editing bay. Not always, but almost always. The editor works under the direction of the director. Is best editing a shared award with the director? No. The, um, the hair and makeup people work under the direction of the director. The cinematographer doesn't decide everything that happens with the cinematography. In the, no, the director does. They work with the cinematographer. Is that a shared award? No. So absolutely, I think the number one job of a director is to get the best performance possible out of the actors because they do have a lot of influence over those performances. But I don't think that means it should be a shared award. Otherwise, every single freaking award would have to be shared with the director. That's how important the director is. But I do believe those need to remain as individual uh, awards. Good question, though, BK. All right, next up. Uh, K Major writes, uh, John, I don't like 15 plus minutes of trailers. Uh, I make it my business to arrive at the theater 10 to 15 minutes uh, after the start time. I got to say, seeing the Batman, Matrix, and Spider-Man trailers on the big screen was freaking awesome. Uh, 12.40 showing, movie starts at 1.04. Well, that's only 24 minutes. That's not bad. And listen, I love trailers. Hell, I made an entire movie about trailers. I made a documentary last year about trailers called Movie Trailers, A Love Story. Go and search for it on Amazon today, everybody. Anyway, I love movie trailers, but... I hate 25 to 30 to 35 minutes sometimes of movie trailers before a movie. You tell the audience, showtime's at 7, start the damn movie at 7. Or start it as close to 7 as possible. I remember the Arclight Theater that is now out of business because of COVID. But the Arclight Theater in Hollywood, they had a strict rule. Three trailers, movie starts. Awesome. You get to enjoy a couple of great trailers and then you get into the movie. You paid to be in the movie theater. You paid to be there. Like, I get it. If you want to watch some free YouTube videos, they play some ads. Okay, fair enough. We get to come on YouTube and watch the videos on here for free. So you show some ads to support that. No problem. If you want to let us into the movie theaters for free and then you want to subject us to 30 minutes of commercials, fair enough. Fair enough. But if we're going to pay 10, 15, 20, 22, $23 to be there, then you don't get to show us a half hour of commercials before giving us the product that we paid to be in there to see. It's a big little gripe of mine, but I love, don't get me wrong. I love trailers. I absolutely do. All right. Let's see. Next up. Uh, where are we at here? Ryan Loner writes one of two. Well, there goes any chance I would ever watch the Continental show. As somebody who apparently overslept on the day we as a society held a meeting and decided we should be okay with Mel Gibson again, I never agreed to it and I never will. So no, I'm never going to watch Apocalypto or Hacksaw Ridge or the Continental and no amount of but they're so good is going to change that, uh, which so many people in my life just can't seem to wrap their heads around. Well, look, this, this brings up the interesting discussion 
that often comes up, Ryan, about should we as audiences separate the artist from the work? Should we as audiences separate the audience or the the artist from the work? Like if you found out that the dude who flipped your burger at Wendy's was a complete asshole, would you stop going to Wendy's? If you found out that the guy who stitched the seats in the Ford car that you drive was a complete and utter asshole, would you get rid of your car and would you stop buying Ford? If you, you know, uh, and then for whatever, whatever extension. And I don't think there's any easy answer to that. I don't think there's an easy answer to that. Like, there are actors out there who I've heard are very difficult people, and quite frankly, they're really unpleasant to be around. But since when is watching a movie dependent on, I have to think that's a nice person? Um, I don't think people have to be nice people. I don't. I mean, I want people to be nice people. I would hope people were nice people. I want to surround myself by nice people. But to get the job done, you don't have to be a nice person. At the same time, all of us as individuals have to have lines that we draw, right? We all have lines that we draw. At some point, it's too much. Like for me, it's, uh, what's his name? I'm even forgetting, is it Chris Brown? Yeah. Like, for my own personal reasons, violence against women is a non-starter for me. And I've got my own personal reasons for that. Violence against women is a non-starter for me. Um, So you look at somebody like Chris Brown, who beat the living shit out of Rihanna to the point that you see pictures and her face looks like beat up meat. It's like, uh, I, Hey, for me, that's a non-starter man. Like that, that then that person for me becomes persona non grata, but everybody's going to have their own lines. Right. And I don't think anybody is right. And I don't think anybody is wrong for having their own, line what what at what line is it too far for you to accept that person's work even though their work is separate from who they are as an individual and you're the consumer man so that means there is no wrong answer if for you the line is here and that determines what you feel comfortable watching then that's the line for you if you think your line is here and that's what determines what is okay for you to watch, then that's the line for you. And ain't nobody has any business telling you that you are right or wrong for feeling that way about what you as a consumer choose to consume or not consume. That's your choice. And everybody's going to have it. So just as I think that nobody should look down on you for being like, hey, the Mel Gibson stuff for me is a line. I will not watch Mel Gibson stuff. I don't think anybody should give you a hard time for that. That is your choice of what you as a consumer want to participate in and consume. 
Nobody should give you a hard time for that. At the same time, Ryan, I would also suggest that you also should probably not have any place giving other people a hard time if they do choose to watch Mel Gibson stuff because their line is going to be in a different place than yours. And they have the choice as a consumer to decide if Mel Gibson is on that line, behind that line, in front of that line, whatever. That's up to them too. Just as it's your choice to set it for yourself. So I respect that, man. Listen, I've got several friends I know who will never watch another Mel Gibson thing. And I I have no problem with that. I don't have any problem with the fact that you don't. I think it's totally understandable. And there's nobody to blame for that but Mel Gibson. So I think it's totally understandable. But I also think you don't have a place to judge anybody else who does decide to watch Mel Gibson stuff because for them about where do they draw the line about how we separate the individual from the work that's done, that's up for them to decide for themselves, not you. Um, So yeah, I just think we just got to respect each other's choices as consumers and making individual choices for ourselves. So I I respect that. And I respect your choices, man, because I think it's a totally understandable one. All right, next up. We go to Min Tran, who writes, For me, I prefer a dubbed version over subbed, uh, just so I don't have to focus on the words on the screen at all times. Uh, At a Viet, I don't know what that means. At a Viet, I have been watching dubs since I... Oh, do you mean as a Vietnamese person, I've been watching dubs since I was uh, since I was little with Vietnamese dubbed of Chinese shows. Um, I can't stand Netflix dubbing company. Most companies get close enough to lip flap. I don't know who does Netflix dub, but their syncing is so off that it crosses the uncanny valley for me. So I've been just skipping most of Netflix's foreign content. Okay, you know what the funny thing you hear though is, Min? Here's the funny thing about that. There are some things, like I have no problem with subtitles, none at all. I watch, I've watched many, many things with subtitles. I still do. But I do agree that there are some movies and shows and, and, and things like that where you want your eyes to always be up on the face of the actor. Some don't need to do that. Some do, right? <clears throat> so there are some that you really want your face to be up looking at the face of the actor and what's going on. And you don't want your eyes down at the bottom of the screen reading. And so sometimes there are projects where uh, dub is actually better. Because your eyes, maybe you're not getting the inflection in the actor's voices, but you're able to see better and observe and watch the expression, the way the actors emote, right? Here's what's funny to me, though. There are times, honestly, sometimes I like just having subtitles on regular shows. Like, even if I'm watching Foundation, I like to have the subtitles on. Just in case I miss something because of a sound effect, I want to be able to, like, if I miss something in the words, I can just shoot my eyes down for a second to see what it was they were saying, right? What's really funny, though, is watching something like, say, Squid Game. To me, the part where it gets hilarious is you're watching Squid Game and you hear the dub say one thing, but the words and the subtitles are totally different. Have you guys ever experienced that? I see it happen so often where it's almost like even completely different meanings. Even completely different meanings. Like, you know, uh, I feel like I really need to go take a shower. And the subtitle, I feel disgusting right now. I need to take a shower. 
It's like, wait, wait a minute. Those are two different thoughts, right? And sometimes, and that's a minor example, but sometimes it's like completely different things. So to me, that's where it gets funny is where the dubbed stuff coming out of the audio and the subtitles actually say different things. That's to me is when it gets funny. All right, next up. We got Dangerous D who writes, Hey, John. Warner Brothers has made a deal with AMC Entertainment for movies that's coming out 2022. It will show movies 45 days before they arrive anywhere else. They'll also stop the day and date release on HBO Max in 2022. Will Warner Brothers be able to fix the trust of movie producers from the Max debacle? Well, I mean, just to be clear, Dangerous Deed, that is very old news at this point. Like Warner Brothers announced a long time. This is all came out a long, long time ago. The 45 day theatrical window moving forward is now going to be the new like standard theatrical window for movies. So that's been understood for a while. And Warner Brothers announcing that they are stopping their day and date releases on HBO Max at the beginning of 2022. That's also old news. That's That's been known for quite a while. They do have a lot of work to do to rebuild bridges with directors and producers that they backstabbed. They have a lot of work to do. I mean, they've already lost out on Christopher Nolan. Warner Brothers wanted to be in the Christopher Nolan business forever, and now Christopher Nolan has jumped ship. He's left. Um, yeah, After whatever they're going to do with Dune is finished, however, whether they do five films, six series, whatever, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Denis Villeneuve then pulled up and didn't work with Warner Brothers again. I mean, I, I don't know for sure, but I mean, that's my guess. Because, oh my God, that article that Denis Villeneuve wrote for Variety, he just ripped Warner Brothers to pieces. Um, so will it be enough? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But listen, one thing that's going to help is that Warner Brothers is about to get new owners, right? The people at Discovery, David Zaslav, the CEO of Discovery, he's about to take over Warner Brothers. And they're going to have new owners and new leadership, and that will go a long way into mending fences. So let's see where that all goes. All right, next up. Alfred gives birth to Robin Wrights. A lot of Clone Wars slash Rebel fans wanted Ahsoka to have closure about Anakin being redeemed. I always assumed Luke would eventually meet her and tell her the news, but with Anakin coming back, uh, I'm assuming he will tell her himself as a Force ghost. Again, I don't know. We talked about this yesterday on the show, obviously, that Hayden Christensen is going to appear in the Ahsoka series. We already know he's going to be in the Obi-Wan series, but news just came out that he will appear in the Ahsoka series. What we don't know is how much. Will it just be a quick cameo? Will it be in for the whole series? I think it's going to be closer to a cameo, but I don't know that for sure. But my guess is going to be closer to a cameo. And then what will the nature be? Will he be a force ghost? Maybe. Is it more likely it'll be a flashback? That's a strong possibility too. So we're going to have to wait till we get a little bit closer to find out. But I agree, Alfred. It's going to be, that's a big, big question. What is going to be the nature of his appearance? Is it going to be as a flashback or will it be as a force ghost? And once we know that, then we'll start to be able to get a better idea about what direction they're going to go. All right, Suthius writes, here's a fun uh, versus for you guys to choose. Five films versus five films. The films are in two well-known franchises and each side has their flaws. With that said, would you choose the last five Bond films or the last five Bourne films? I'd personally choose the Bond films. Oh, that's a good question. You know what? I'll go with the Bond films as well. Because while I loved the third Born, what was the third Born film called? Was it the Born Ultimatum? Was that the third one? I loved that one. I 
I didn't fall in love with the Bourne series until the third film. I didn't fall in love with it until the third film. And uh, I thought the last one was terrible, where it was Jason Bourne versus Facebook, basically. That, that was the last movie. The last one was Jason Bourne versus Facebook. And then you had the one that didn't even have Jason Bourne. Was it the Bourne Legacy? Was that the name of it? Um, I still thought that movie was pretty good, even without Jason Bourne. But it was a Bourne movie without Jason Bourne, uh, even though I still thought the movie was pretty good. But yeah, overall, now Bond has had a couple of weak films with Quantum of Solace and um, Spectre. But it's had three really strong ones to me, like the last out of the last five, the Daniel Craig era films with uh, Casino Royale, Skyfall, and then No Time to Die. I thought those were three really strong films. So yeah, I will go with uh, I will go with uh, the Bond, last five Bond films. All right, Alfred gives birth to Robin, and we just got a couple of minutes left here, guys. After uh, Alfred gives birth to Robin, writes provided that Warner Brothers greenlights more sequels for the Batman. I know that casting the Joker is inevitable, but I would like to see Matt Reeves take on Mister Freeze. Uh, any villains you would like to see? I know you like KG Beast a lot. I do like KG Beast. Listen, this is I've said this before, but I'll say it again. And it's even true of Batman. Like, yes, if you continue doing the new Robert Pattinson Batman films, at some point you have to do a new Joker. You have to bring Joker in at some point. doesn't have to be in this film, doesn't have to be in the next film, but at some point you do have to bring in a new Joker. I don't care who they cast. Like, to me, X actor and X role don't care. I'll, I'll trust the filmmakers that they'll know who the right person is to cast for that role. All I ask is that they choose a talented actor. That's all I ask. As far as what villain I want to see, a few years ago, I started to, I started to realize this truth. It doesn't matter what villain they put in the film. doesn't matter. Because it will not make your movie any better or any worse. And the greatest example of that is Dr. Doom. Dr. Doom is one of the greatest comic book villains in history. And that did not help make any of the Fantastic Four movies we've had so far any good. That didn't help those movies at all. The only thing that, the, what matters is not is who is your villain. What matters is how do you write that villain? And you can put in an unknown villain. If you write them extremely well, that's going to make your movie. And it doesn't matter if you put in the most famous comic book villain in history. If you don't write that villain well, it ain't going to do anything for your movie. So I kind of a few years ago kind of developed the philosophy that I don't care what villain they choose to put in these movies. I only care that they write a great villain, whether it's a famous one, an unknown one, doesn't matter. But John, you might say, you just said they need to eventually put in the Joker. Well, yeah, because the Joker is synonymous with Batman. So at some point he's got to be there because he's just like, eventually Lex Luthor has to be a part of a Superman story. It doesn't have to right away, whatever, but eventually that has to be there. So, and like Wolverine, at some point you got to have a saber tooth. Like at some point, saber tooth's got to be somewhere in a long stretching story of Wolverine kind of has to be there. But ultimately, I don't really think it matters. It just matters that you write the villain really well. So there's that. But you're right. I do really like KG Beast. I like KG Beast a lot. Thanks for remembering that, man. All right. Next up, we've got uh, Double B Studios who writes one of two. 
I'm going to be brutally honest. Dune was bad. No, it wasn't, but you thought it was, and that's okay. Uh, seven of us watched it. Two of us fell asleep. The other five, me included, were awake, but like trying to get into it. Uh, seven of us in one car. It was the quietest ride home I've ever been. It felt like movie uh, a movie two of a trilogy. Uh, we finally talked about the movie getting home 45 minutes later, and we all put our thoughts together, came up with every major action scene was in the entire trailer and felt no connection to the characters when they died. Cinematography was amazing. I mean, listen, again, we've had a bunch of people writing in saying it's the best movie ever. We've had a few people writing in saying they didn't like it. That's the beautiful thing about movies, man. Is that now I disagree with you. I I don't I felt I feel like it felt like part one of two. It didn't feel like part two or three to me. Uh, I thought the action was fantastic. The acting was great. I felt very connected to the characters. Um, but I mean, that was my experience. Yours was different, and I'm glad you shared yours, Double B. Thanks for sharing your thoughts, man. All right, next up, uh, KW Garrett writes, "No time to die. Well acted." Good stunt work, meandering plot, runtime was too long, weak villain, and Lashana wasted. Oh, I didn't think, I thought Lashana was great in it. I didn't think she was wasted at all. Anyway, I enjoyed it mildly, but this perpetually depressed version of Bond is tiresome. Look forward to the next Bond movie taking itself less seriously. I, I mean, I, I disagree. I've heard a couple of people say that. I have never gotten that impression. Actually, I just went back and watched Casino Royale again. I didn't get that at all. Now, it makes sense that as you get into an older Bond who's seen more and has been a little bit more jaded, he's got more weight of the world on him. Other Bond films never did that. Like, a lot of the other Bond films, it was very, very episodic. And very rarely in past Bond films did one Bond film build upon the next. In the James, in the Daniel Craig Bond films, they did do that. This is one continuous story. And so as you enter into a new Bond film, you now have a character that has the weight of the events of previous films still weighing on their shoulders. And if you're going to do that, you've got to show a character that becomes a little bit jaded in the world and maybe even a little bit world weary. And so for me, that worked spectacularly well, but it didn't work for everybody. And I appreciate that. All right. Next up. And this is the last one we'll do here today, guys. This one comes to us from Eric Cole, who writes, uh, one of two. Hi, John. First time writing in. Well, thank you for writing in, Eric. Uh, and I want to thank you for all that you do. Your work has made a significant impact on the direction I've managed to steer my life towards. And I hope one day that I can do the same for somebody else. That's awesome, man. Also, as I try to craft a career in the film and TV world, one of my side missions is to somehow be involved in something that ends up being a main topic at the John Campia show for good reasons, hopefully. Keep bringing on the filthy. Well, Eric, man, thank you. so. That is honestly one of the nicest things you could possibly say. Um, that means so much to me that you would say that. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. And congratulations on carving your way into the film and TV world. That is awesome that you're able to pursue that. And it sounds like you're getting a little bit of traction. So that's great. And thanks, man, for sharing that with us here. With that said, guys, that'll do it. For today's installment of the John Campia Show, thank you guys so much for being here, making the show a part of your day. Don't forget, guys, special thank you to all of you who, number one, sent in the Super Chat badges. Thank you for that. And all of you who sent in the tip questions, number one, because you gave us great fun things to talk about. But number two, you supported this channel as you did. And all of us involved with the John Campia Show, thank you guys so very much for that support. Okay, guys, don't forget to do the four main things. Stay smart, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and please take care of the people around you. That'll do it for me for now, guys. My name's John Campia, and until tomorrow's show, bye-bye. <laughs>